the first reading this morning is from John chapter 5, reading verses 31 to 40. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies on my behalf, and I know that his testimony to me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. Not that I accept such human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a testimony greater than John's. The work that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I am doing, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified on my behalf. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you, because you do not believe him who he has sent. Um, and then the second reading is from a bit further on in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 30 to 35. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, especially because the Sabbath was a day of great solemnity. So they asked Pilate to have the legs of the crucified men broken and the bodies removed. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified, so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. Uh, the third reading today is from the first letter of John, uh, chapter 5, reading verses 6 to 13. This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one that testifies, for the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive human testimony, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he has testified to his Son. Those who believe in the Son of God have the testimony in their hearts. Those who do not believe in God have made him a liar by not believing in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. At a recent pro-gun rally, the American President Donald Trump made a striking reference to the issue of knife crime here in London. Did you, did you hear this? He was addressing the National Rifle Association, which lobbies strongly against gun control in the US. And he said that an, at an unnamed London hospital, 
It was, quote, like a war zone for horrible stabbing wounds with blood all over the floors. Now, whilst it is likely that he was most likely remembering and then spinning a sensationalist story from the Daily Mail, it is also true that violent crime, including knife crime, has been steadily increasing in the capital in recent years. The causes of the current spike in violence are complex, and there certainly isn't an easy solution to it. But that doesn't, of course, stop people wanting to find one. And of course, we'd all like it to be as fast and straightforward to implement as possible. So, is the president correct? Is the reason we have knife crime because we have declined to arm the civilian population with guns? I'm not sure there's a great appetite for doing this, so maybe we need to look elsewhere. Maybe we need more police on the streets with more powers to stop and search. Maybe we just agree to live with the erosion of liberty and the systemic racial profiling that such an approach inevitably brings with it. Or maybe we should just keep locking people up to adapt another slogan from Mr. Trump. If we keep removing people from society by sending them to prison, maybe that'll solve the problem. Well, this week, Liz and I, together with our goddaughter Erin, attended the launch of the Kerstler Trust Prisoner Artwork Exhibition down at St. Martin in the Fields. We were immensely privileged to have this very moving artwork on display here at Bloomsbury uh, a couple of weeks ago. I do hope that you were able to take the opportunity to go up to the gallery in the gallery when it was here uh, to have a look at it. But if you didn't, you haven't missed the boat because you can still see them in the Crypt Gallery at St. Martin's where they've just been installed. And for the St. Martin's launch event on Tuesday night, the panel included two former chief inspectors of prisons, both of whom spoke with passion about the fact that our prisons are simply not solving the problems that we're asking them to address. We have the highest rate of prisoner per population count in Europe. We have 148 prisoners per 100,000 people in the population, which compares, we have 148, it's 94 in Germany, it's 84 in France, one of our nearest similar societies, way higher in, in England. There are more prisoners in England and Wales, I'm excluding Scotland here because actually it's not so bleak in Scotland. There are more prisoners in England and Wales than in any other country in Europe, more than the combined total of the Netherlands, Portugal, Belgium, Austria, Scotland, Sweden, Switzerland, Finland, Norway and Northern Ireland. We have more people in prison than all of those other countries combined. Overcrowding unsanitary and dehumanising conditions and lack of access to mental health care services mean that those who spend time in prison emerge largely ill-equipped to take up a meaningful place in society and all too soon they're back in prison or living on the streets. The question was raised and raised powerfully at the Kirstler Trust event about whether this is the kind of society that we want to live in and there was a good deal of discussion about what we might do about it. And I'd just like to say that if you're stirred by this issue, you might want to come and have a conversation with me about whether you'd like to become involved in the Churches Together in Westminster Prison Visiting Ministry. 
I think this is an issue that affects us all, but it occurs behind locked doors and high walls, and is so very easy to ignore. I'm going to accept an invitation to go and visit a prison at some point with the Kersler Trust to see how the other half lives, so to speak, and I will let you know how I get on with that. But as I've been reflecting on this during the week, the question has stayed with me. And the question is this, why is it that we as a society have got to a place where we are content simply to lock people away, to put them out of society as the best solution we have to the problem of their behavior? Now, sure, some people who have deep and violent mental health problems will need to be locked away for their own and everybody else's protection, absolutely. But most of the people in our prisons are not in that category when they go in, even if they are closer to it when they come out. Many studies have shown that prison is highly ineffective as either punishment or deterrent, and yet we still turn to locking people up, not as our place of last resort, but as our solution of first resort. And all this got me thinking about the Old Testament story of the scapegoat. If we'd had a fourth reading this morning, it would have been from Leviticus chapter 16, verse 10. I'm just going to spend a moment or two with this image of the scapegoat, and it's going to take us then into our readings from the New Testament this morning. The French philosopher René Girard describes the ancient practice of the scapegoat, and I'm just going to quote him briefly. He says... The ritual consisted of driving into the wilderness a goat on which all the sins of Israel had been laid. The high priest placed his hands on the head of the goat, and this act was supposed to transfer onto the animal everything likely to poison relations between members of the community. The effectiveness of the ritual was the idea that the sins were then expelled with the goat, and the community was rid of them. This Jewish practice of scapegoating emerged in a culture where there were already many different rituals of expulsion. As people were declared unclean or unworthy or unpalatable for a whole host of reasons. I mean, if you were a woman between puberty and menopause, you were put out of society by being confined to your tent for a week a month. So they had a whole system of, of, sort of excluding people or locking them away from society. And the scapegoat emerged within that idea. And the idea of the scapegoat was that it took the place of those whose sin or circumstance might otherwise render them unacceptable to society. And one of René Girard's insights is that all societies, whether ancient or contemporary, are prone to scapegoating. There is something deeply human about wanting to be rid of the thing that has come to represent our deepest problems in our society. We can always see it more clearly with the benefit of hindsight, of course. And we can identify those places in other societies and other cultures which have engaged in the practice of scapegoating. It's much harder to identify it from within when we are doing it. So we can look, as I have done for a piece of research a few years ago, at the Suffolk witch trials of the 1640s, 
And we can see how women who didn't fit the expected model of what a woman should be were hunted and tried and executed as society put onto them all of its fears about disaster and disease and that kind of stuff. We can see it in the way in which people who were homosexual were treated by British society through much of the 20th century as they took the blame for everything from the breakdown of family life to the AIDS epidemic. We can still see it in the way some sections of the Christian church treat those whose theology or ideology is at odds with the mainstream, blaming those transgressors for bringing God's wrath down upon the wider Christian community. Why are the churches not growing? Well, it's because those people are betraying us all by not proclaiming the truth in the right way. So if we can kick them out, maybe then revival will come. But can we see it in ourselves? And can we see it in the society of which we're a part? Maybe we need to ask ourselves the question, who or what represents your deepest fear? Who or what represents our deepest fear as a, as a community of Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church? Who would you or we gladly be rid of from our life and our community? Our society, I want to suggest, scapegoats offenders. But hear this very clearly, this is not to say that offenders are innocent. Actually, in order to be effective as a scapegoat, the person being scapegoated can't be entirely innocent. A scapegoat has to be guilty of something for the process to work. As the first letter of John has reminded us earlier in our preaching series, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 1, verse 8. Everyone's guilty of something. That's the beauty of the scapegoating system. You push anyone hard enough and you're going to get guilt. What happens, though, is that the guilt that is rightly theirs becomes magnified to the point where they have to take on the guilt of everyone else in the society, so that by putting the scapegoat out into the wilderness, the rest of us can sleep easier for a few nights, until it's time to do it again, of course. And as a society, we are remarkably effective at scapegoating. We have a sophisticated and nuanced legal system which defines the fine line between transgression and innocence, and which punishes those who have transgressed, putting them away behind walls and doors, locking them away from the rest of us, in the shared conviction that by doing so, we will rid ourselves of what ails us. Except, of course, it's not working, because violent crime continues to rise. And this is because violence is not solved by ever-increasing punishments for those who are violent. It's solved by investing in mental health support, in family support, in better social care, in better education, in mentoring schemes like the one run by our church member Charlie. It's solved in rehabilitation programmes, in restorative justice initiatives. And our lack of these things is, I think, a stain on our society for which we all share collective guilt. We, after all, are the shared architects of our society. If there are things that are wrong out there, well, we have to bear some guilt of that because we voted the people who designed it. 
And so we have to do something with the fact that society is not the way we want it to be, but we're guilty of that fact. And so we collude to rid ourselves of our collective guilt by scapegoating the guilty, requiring that they bear our sins away to their prison cells in the hope that we will never see them or our sins again. Can you see the circularity of this system that we're stuck in? And this is not a new phenomenon. As I've said, it's as old as society. The ancient Jewish practice of scapegoating an actual goat at least had the benefit of punishing an animal rather than a human. Whereas we have a tendency to reduce humans to animals as we lock them up in crowded hutches and call them prisons. But what's to be done? Well, I think it all comes down to the question of what kind of a life we want for ourselves and what kind of a life we want for our families and for our friends and for our neighbours. Perhaps more challengingly, I think it also comes down to what kind of a life we want for our enemies, for those who have offended or upset us or those who have done us or might do us wrong or harm. To put it another way, what kind of a society do we want to live in? And this is where our passage from the first letter of John offers a valuable insight into our situation. The challenge that it brings is a stark choice. Are we going to live in such a way as to bring life to the world, or are we going to make choices that perpetuate the stranglehold of death? Life or death is your choice. What do you choose? It's not easy to just say, I choose life, because that has consequences. Sometimes it's easier to say, I choose death, certainly for that person, put them out, lock them up. John offers his readers a tantalizing vision of an alternative way of being human, a new kind of life which is lived in the here and now, but which has an eternal quality to it. And rather than prolonging those patterns of behavior individually and societally that lead to destruction, he invites his readers, he invites us to catch a glimpse of a different way of doing human relationships, where the end result is not death, but a quality of life that has eternal significance. Putting it plainly, he says, chapter 5, verse 11, God has given us eternal life. And this life is his son. As far as he is concerned, there is something about Jesus which changes everything. There's something to be experienced in encountering Jesus, encountering him by his spirit, encountering him through the stories that we tell about the way his life was lived. Something about that encounter which opens new possibilities for living. And this something is called, in language strongly reminiscent of John's Gospel, eternal life. Now, I want to be clear that eternal life, in the way it's used in John's Gospel and in the letters of John, is not a synonym for where you go when you die. Do not read heaven for eternal life. By the same token, not having eternal life is not a code for going to hell and being punished eternally. Rather, when the Johannine writings, the Gospel of John and the Letters of John and the Book of Revelation, when they talk about eternal life, they're talking about a quality of life that we can access in the here and now. 
but which has an eternal value that transcends our living of it in the here and now. And this eternal life is not something that any of us can find for ourselves. Rather, it originates with the love of God being perfectly present in the person of his son Jesus and brought to us by the spirit of Jesus who is at work in and through us drawing us closer to the example of his life. To be without this eternal life is to be spiritually dead now. But to discover it is to discover a new way of living that breaks through all of those spirals of unforgiveness and scapegoating. To draw us into uh, what has been described as the highest kind of spiritual and moral life. If who we are eternally is the redemption of all that we are now, then there are certainly eternal consequences to whether or not we live the eternal life of Christ into being in our midst. But what is it about Jesus that gives us this new quality of life? What is it about the story and example of Christ that brings this gift of eternal life to those who encounter him? And to answer this, we need to go back towards the beginning of our passage from the first letter of John, to that strange phrase repeated in verses 6 and 8, that Jesus comes by the water and the blood. As I discovered when I started plowing my way through commentaries earlier this week, scholars have spilled much ink over this slightly strange verse. And in true John style, it carries a range of meanings. What does it mean, the water and the blood? Some see here an, an echo of the baptism and death of Jesus as he was baptised in the waters of the River Jordan and as his blood was shed on the cross. This would mean that those who encounter him in a life-giving way do so by meeting him in the waters of baptism and then meeting him regularly again and again in the poured-out wine of the communion meal, a kind of sacramental encounter with Jesus that draws us repeatedly into the new life, the eternal life that he offers. The spirit then that descended on Jesus at his baptism is seen to be with us, bringing us to new life through the forgiveness of sins. And as we too are washed clean of our guilt and raised from death to new life in Christ, and I think there's something in this. And I'll take the opportunity to repeat the offer I've made in the last few weeks. We are planning a baptismal service here for early June. If you've not yet been baptised but would like to be, please speak to me. But this image of water and blood goes to other levels of meaning beyond baptism and communion. There may well also be an echo here of the process of human birth, where babies are born into the mixture of blood and the waters of the amniotic fluid, the kind of the, the messy risk of life coming into being. And at this level of meaning, the assertion that Jesus comes into the world through the water and the blood 
is a statement of his total humanity that needs to be set alongside the other assertions of his total divinity. Perhaps here is uh, an echo of the ancient belief that Jesus was only adopted by God at his baptism and that the spirit withdrew from him at the crucifixion. So he was born human and died human. That was one of the early heresies. And maybe what we've got going on here by saying, no, Jesus came by not just by water, but by water and by blood, is that Jesus is totally human. He is totally God from birth to death. I think there's something of this in here. And the implication of this, for those of us who would follow Jesus, is to be found in another echo from John's Gospel, this time the story of Nicodemus, who argued back when Jesus said people needed to be born again in order to enter into the new life of the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied to Nicodemus, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, what is born of the spirit is spirit. Those who want to live the eternal life that Jesus brings can do so as the Spirit brings them to new life. But we're not done with this image yet. It speaks to us of encountering Jesus in baptism and communion and of being born anew into the kingdom of God. But it also, I think, takes us straight to the moment of crucifixion. And we had this in the second of our readings from John's Gospel. As the centurion took a spear and thrust it into Jesus' side and what came out was blood and water. By this image, we enter into eternal life through the cross of Christ. And this takes us back to scapegoating, back to violence, back to spilled blood. The practice of taking our collective guilt and putting it on an identified other, and then putting them out of society, or even killing them, is both ubiquitous and ineffective. It doesn't solve the problem it sets out to solve, it just creates more problems in the long run. But within Christian thought, the sacrifice of Jesus is something different. The significant thing about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is that he was truly innocent, rather than already guilty of something which could be magnified. So when the collective guilt of us, of society, of the world, is placed on him, when he is crucified for the sins of the world, it is a once and for all sacrifice that is effective eternally in all times and in all places. It doesn't need to be repeated in the way that the scapegoat sacrifice needs to be continually redone. The insight here is that people can only be freed from their compulsion to keep scapegoating others when something decisively breaks that cycle, and that something within the Christian tradition is the cross of Jesus. The spiral of death is disrupted by the sacrificial death of Jesus, and those who encounter that disruption are given the capacity to enter into this new way of living that Jesus brings, where life and no longer death is the dominant force. Those who know their sins have been forgiven by Jesus' death can discover that they no longer need to offload their guilt onto scapegoats. And so they can start to see new ways of dealing with human sin. 
that take us in the direction of eternal life rather than death. So the person who has embraced eternal life in Jesus will see pathways to restoration and rehabilitation in others where many will just see evil and danger. The baying of the tabloids that people should be locked up indefinitely, that greater use of indeterminate sentences where there is no recognition that the person can ever change to the point where they can be back in human society, that is a path of death. And I'm going to suggest that as Christians, that is something we should reject. I think even if we see people being locked up, we need to see the possibility for restoration and rehabilitation, because that has been our experience of our own lives. The person who has been born again from above will see the possibilities of forgiveness and new life, where others just see punishment and death. The person who has been baptised into Christ's body and who shares in the spilled blood of the cross at communion will know that they are just a sinner saved by grace and that they should not judge others, lest they too be judged. Lock them up is not the cry of a Christian. The person who believes that in Jesus, God became flesh and died and was raised will know that the potential for new life can emerge from even the darkest of lives. And so they will resist any attempt to write anyone off beyond the point of redemption. What would you have done with Saul of Tarsus? This multiple murderer who targeted Christians and put them to death, what would you have done with him? Lock him up? In short, it is through our encounter with Christ and probably only through our encounter with Christ, that we can stop wanting to continually scapegoat others for our sins. And if we can be released from this drive to offload our guilt onto others, then we can start to live in ways that bring life and not death. And if we can do that, we can offer good news to those who are still trapped in spirals of death. Good news that there is hope and forgiveness and restoration and redemption and resurrection to new life. So when we come to playing our part in our society, when we come to making our decisions about voting and our actions and our activism and our speaking and our doing, we are, as Christ's people, called to be the voice of an, of an alternative way. We are called to resist the insidious narratives of scapegoating. We're called to see the divine spark in the darkest heart. We are called to visit those who are in prison. And we are called to bring liberty to those who are captivated by evil.
ever-loving and ever-living God, we come now to pray in love for the life of your world. Lord of love, we pray for all those whose lives are not lived in love. We pray for those in relationships where love has diminished. We pray for those who have been betrayed by those they love and for those who have turned away from a love once cherished. We pray for those who love objects more than people and for those who can only love people when they see them as objects. We pray for those whose actions towards others are not loving and for ourselves when we have not loved others as you have loved us. We thank you that your love is eternal and unending and that you draw the world to you in love. Lord of justice, we pray for those whose lives lack the experience of justice. We pray for those who are wrongfully imprisoned and for those who have been victims of injustice within the legal system. We pray for those who have been rightfully imprisoned. We pray for those who have pursued paths of vengeance and not justice, seeking relief for their suffering through the suffering of another. We pray for those who work to ensure justice is done, those who blamelessly uphold the law for the good of all. We pray for those who mediate between people and who see restoration as the goal of justice. We thank you that your justice is righteous and loving and that you desire mercy for others as you have mercy on us. Lord of integrity, we pray for those whose lives are lacking in integrity, for those who do not speak truth either to themselves or to others and for those who live as victims of the deceit of others. We pray also for those who seek to speak truth, but who face opposition and hostility for their honesty. May we have the courage to speak truth to power and the wisdom to discern the truth when it's revealed. We thank you that your truth transcends our capacity for deception and that you challenge us to live lives of integrity and integration. So in love and longing for justice and committed to integrity, we pray now for your world. We commit to your loving care all those affected by violence in our city. We pray for children and young adults caught up in spirals of hatred beyond their knowledge or control. We pray for worried families and for bereaved parents. And we pray for Paris, reeling from another attack. 
We commit to your justice those who live with a tangible experience of injustice. And we think especially of those caught in the growing crisis in Syria. We think of those in Iran. We think of friends known to us in this church who are struggling with the injustice of our asylum and immigration system in this country. We pray that those who have to live with injustice may be saved from the path of seeking violent retribution against others. Keep us from spirals of violence. We pray for all those who are the victims of scapegoating. And we pray for those who hand out hatred to make themselves feel better. We commit to your truth all those whose lives are lived in deceit. And we think especially of those who have been lied to and brought to our country on the promise of a better life, only to find that they are used and abused by those more powerful than they. We pray particularly for the work of Ella's Home, and we thank you for Emily, who leads that, and for her willingness to come here last week and speak to us about it in the evening. Be with them as they offer a safe place for women who have been trapped in the sex industry. God of love, God of justice, God of truth, hear our prayers for the sake of Christ Jesus. Amen.